Going Home, Episode 7, More Trouble. Chapter 26. Danny is now driving down a secondary paved country road. We angle in on a driver's side profile. He is pouring some pills from a prescription bottle into his mouth. I got a headache. I wonder why. Yeah, okay, yep, got you. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Go again? Go again slowly. Once more. Uh-huh. He stole a pickup truck. He stole... A pickup truck. Okay, got ya. He stole, I can't believe it, what the? He stole a pickup truck. Chapter 27. We come up on a wide long shot of a graveyard. In the wide shot, we see Sully sitting on the tailgate of the stolen pickup truck, looking at a gravesite. That's my wife, Corey, over there. I mean, I know that you know that because, well, I told you. I, I was headed out to, to see that, well, and then I somehow got here. Yeah, that's her over there. Breaks my heart every time I come here. Not just that she's gone. It's the fact that she's buried here. Here with her side of the family. She's here because... Well, when she died, I was drinking extra hard. And, and then I just got confused. So I let her family take over. And they wanted to bury her here. And that's what happened. And there she is, in their plot. I just didn't have the planning worked out for her to die like that. I knew she was dying, but I... I froze. Froze solid. No planning whatsoever. I thought I... I thought I, try, I, I tried to be a good husband, but... Ah, then it all went south on me. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is, the day before she died, she wanted me to take her down to the lake one last time. One last time. That's all she wanted. She just wanted to be put in our truck and taken down to the lake so she could look out over the waves. One last time. But I was drunk and I couldn't. And that is a weight on me that I know will never go away. Chapter 28 Danny is back in his car, driving along the same paved country road. As you all just heard, I just now got done being hit by another loop-de-loop. -loop. The old man is now stealing pickup trucks. Jesus H up in heaven. Can you believe it? A person his age stealing a pickup? 
If it wasn't my old man, I'd be proud of him. Old people don't steal pickups. They steal denture cream or hair dye or lawn bowling balls. Everyday shit they need. Stealing vehicles is teenage territory and you're supposed to grow out of it, not into it. Oh, Jesus Christ. Man, oh man. You gotta, you gotta give, he's, you gotta give it to him. He's not afraid of the deep end. Okay, shut up me, enough of the idol worship. I gotta get serious here. I will now need every bit of my brain power to get us out of this one. Lucky for him, he's doing something completely out of his age group. We can pin this one on teenage horseplay. Here's my plan. I get over to the graveyard, hog wrestle the keys away from him, then I drive the stolen pickup to the town high school, park it out back, and voila! The cops will think it was a bunch of grade 9 joyriders that stole that pickup. Like we all did back then. All I gotta worry about is being spotted on the drive over to the high school. But I think we're going to be okay. Fingers crossed on a honky-dory ending to this story. God damn that old man of mine. What we come up with next? No, forget I said that. Let's pray there is no next. Let's pray we are at the very end of this story. Chapter 29 Maynard is sitting at the Sullivan kitchen table. He is talking with Steve and Esther. I realize that this is a very difficult time for both of you. And I would like to help you if I could. Because we go back. All three of us go back. We have a connection. Steve and I through cameras and Esther, you know, knocking around a bit here and there, high school. And now we are all reconnected through this problem. And this problem is about your father and vehicular theft. And I believe the question at hand is not so much the theft, but in the why. Like why did your father steal a pickup truck? Now, I am no expert, but I have been around, and I believe he is reliving his yesterdays. And I will tell you how I came to that conclusion. One time, I was bringing him home from one of his escapades, and I asked him what he wanted. What did he really want out of life? He turned to me and he said to me, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. Most people would skim that statement over, but I didn't skim that over and I'll tell you why. I just want to go home. Well, home to where? Home to his farm, home to his family, or maybe it was home to his yesterdays. That's what I believe has happened to him. He's out there right now, kicking a can down the highway of his former self, looking for what mattered, revisiting young love and other treasured moments, 
He has once more taken off his shoes and gone barefoot. Chapter 30. We come up to a very tight headshot of Danny. He is intensely looking out somewhere. He squints. He then shakes his head and closes his eyes before opening them up once again. You know how everything at a distance looks peaceful? Even if it's not peaceful, it still looks peaceful? Like those wide-angle camera shots in Lawrence of Arabia. You got that never-ending peaceful sea of sand followed by the bluest of skies. A sky so blue that it looks fake. It looks like a crop dusting airplane that instead of crop dusting the crop, it crop dusted the whole sky, a brilliant blue. Then you got Lawrence riding towards you on his camel, dressed all in the whitest of whites, his head cocked high, acting like he owned the place. It's perfect. It's an African postcard. But just as you were about to fall asleep from all the perfect, we zoom in for a close-up. And guess what's at the end of that zoom? Doom is what is at the end of that zoom. Because in that close-up, we now see that Mr. Lawrence of Arabia is barely in the saddle. He's flopping back and forth like a hooked fish. He is dying of thirst and getting ready to fall off his camel. Fall off head first right out of that blue sky African postcard and succumb. Succumb to the elements. I hate that word. I would hate to succumb. Shoot me, drown me, hang me. Just don't succumb me. And here's a question for you. How come this? How come all those history explorers succumbed? No matter where they got to, like Florida, or Australia, or the North Pole. They all succumbed to the element. Didn't none of them fall off a cliff, or get torn apart by wildlife, or even choke to death on a beaver bone? <sighs> I know what you're thinking. I'm meandering, not getting to the point. That's because I'm trying to wish something away. But that ain't gonna happen. We cut away to a wide shot of Danny's point of view of the Birch Grove Cemetery with an angle on Cora Lou Sullivan's just dug up grave. That's right, just dug up grave. There is dirt on both sides of the hole and a shovel sticking out of the dirt. We linger on this view for a bit. Here's what's going down around that view. It's early morning. Everyone in town is still sleeping. The sun is still coming up over the tops of the trees. The late May dew is lying, thick as a thief on the fresh up grass. A fat roll of fog is starting to lift off that grass. Of course, the birds are singing, and the song they are singing sounds an awful lot like a spoonful of sugar. We cut back to Danny. He is smoking his cigarette and still trying to make sense of what he is seeing. I know what you're thinking. I know. You're thinking, I'm avoiding the here and now. I'm avoiding that out there. Because you think that I think my father's down that grave dead. Self-inflicted dead and hugging my mother's casket. 
God damn it, if this isn't starting to feel like a Made in Canada movie. Okay, okay, here goes. I am only hoping and praying that I am wrong. I have been wrong about almost everything to do with life. Let's hope I can keep my track record. Please let me be all wrong about this one. Fingers crossed. Salt thrown. Please, oh please, touch some wood. Let me be wrong. All right, enough of the putting off. He then moves quickly to the grave and looks in. Angle on the bottom of the grave. Nothing. No sully or casket. Danny stands there for a few beats looking down. He then looks up and all around. He is in shock. He then sits down on the edge of the grave. He looks around again and then looks back into the grave once more. Chapter 31, the same day. We come up on a wide shot of a country road. The birds are singing. We stay on this for a beat, and then off we hear a vehicle motor coming towards the scene. Then a red, stolen F-150 Ford pickup flies into our view. As it flies by us, we see the back of Sully's head, behind the wheel driving the pickup. Then we see a casket in the back of the pickup. The truck flies on down the road until it is out of our sight. Chapter 32. Here we are in a doctor's office. Our doctor, Dr. Ann Howe, age 39, is sitting behind a desk. We see that the office has recently been renovated, which suggests that she has newly moved in, and further suggests that Miss Howe is not from around here. She addresses us directly. Dementia is basically a brain disease caused by a variety of processes. These processes are initiated by brain trauma, as in numerous concussions, as well as genetic disposition towards the disease. As the disease progresses, it manifests itself in memory loss, personality changes, and impaired thinking. In this man's case, I will not be specific. He is a patient of mine, and I would insist that he be present while discussing my interpretation of his recent behavior. This is basically what I told Mr. Stephen Sullivan and his sister Esther Sullivan, son and daughter of my patient, Michael Sullivan. I quickly assessed that Stephen Sullivan was not looking for information regarding dementia, but rather was trying to gain an ally. So as he put it, get something done, re his father's recent behavior. The behavior, according to Stephen, includes running away from home, hitchhiking, and wandering uninvited through social situations. His sister soon picked up on Stephen's intent, as she put it, to get their father put away. 
and a very heated argument took place between the two of them. It was in the middle of their bantering that Miss Sullivan took out cigarettes and proceeded to try to light one. Of course, I denied her the opportunity to have her cigarette in my office. I found her utter contempt for the law and social norms appalling, but at the moment kept this to myself. However, with all my internal outrage over Miss Sullivan and smoking, I had to agree with her, re her brother's reasons for seeing me. I again stated nothing could be done about Michael Sullivan's situation without Mr. Sullivan being present. This brought on more acrimony between the siblings and I took it upon myself to suggest family counselling. Furthermore, I suggested additional therapy for Miss Sullivan's tobacco addiction. My concern over Miss Sullivan's addiction was not well received and Miss Sullivan actually took out her cigarettes, lit one and blew smoke in my direction. Repeatedly, she blew smoke rings in my direction. It was at this point I pulled the fire alarm. Chapter 33. We come up on a grove of trees just off a side road, which is just off the main road. Sheltered inside the grove of trees, we find Sully, the pickup, and the casket. From inside this grove of trees, we can't see the main road, but once in a while we hear it as cars whiz by. It is still quite early in the same day, say around 10 a.m., before the heat comes up. And yes, it will be hot today. During the following, Sully will break off tree branches to conceal the casket in the back of the pickup. Yeah, it happened. I dug her up. Only I forgot the camouflage, so now I... And, and then, ju just after you left, I got to thinking. And that thinking went in this direction. It's too late to do the right thing. But I could still do the almost right thing and take Corey down to the lake. And before I knew it, that's what happened. I dug her up and here we are. Oh, this looked like Hollywood clockwork, and it was. I got blessed by good luck. First off, we had a shovel in the back of the truck. And second off, we had a pair of teenagers off to do some early morning fishing. They were cutting through the graveyard, so I told them what I was up to, gave them a hundred bucks, and we got Corey out and into the truck. I asked them if they wanted to know what was going on, and they said, nope, the hundred dollars will do. <laughs> Don't you just love teenagers? Yeah. <laughs> so, so here I am. Now, what I plan to do is... Who am I trying to fool? I, I couldn't plan past five minutes anymore, even if I wanted to. I'm living in a completely spontaneous environment, which brings me to the power of a Sharpie. Here, written right on the palm of my hand, take Corey to the lake. 
there you go. Proof in the pudding. The pen is mightier than a fucked up brain. Chapter 34. We shift locations. Same time, same day. We come up inside the Pemberton town limits. Constable Maynard is waiting to address us. He is on the sidewalk in front of Dr. Howe's office. A red light flashes on and off the side of his face. We also hear the ambulance crews at work as well as the locals muttering around. Cops and medics and flashing red lights, not to mention sirens, don't happen every day in a small town. So when they do, they never fail to draw a crowd. As you might imagine, it is extremely difficult to search, cuff, and taser your high school sweetheart. Let me go back over the altercation. I tried to remain professional, but she kept blowing smoke in my face and I was forced to taser her. I gave her a full blast that lasted between 25 and 30 seconds. That is a lot of electricity. However, I might quickly add, I have been assured by our medical professionals that she will quite likely make a full recovery. Off the record, any hope I had for a coffee and closure of our high school time together is probably completely out of the question. Don't get me wrong, I have a wife and children I love dearly. It's just a cop. Cops like to close up cold case files, circle the wagons on our yesterdays, and write finis to the various chapters of our lives. Like, why did we break up? What happened at that bush party? I suppose now I will never know. Fair warning. To all you potential police cadets, we cops are a singular breed, destined to paddle a lonely canoe, a canoe of resignation, a canoe that will never embrace the comfort of the herd, never feel the pull of public solidarity. All we have is our brothers and sisters in arms, and sometimes it's not enough. But we signed on for this. We signed on for all the late-night red lights, taser guns, and takedowns. I, myself, willingly climbed into bed and snuggled up to the police brotherhood. And I'm damned proud of that. I hope all you new recruits will be, too. Chapter 35 Steve is walking across Dr. Howe's office parking lot. He laughs to himself and shakes his head as he moves towards his car. He zaps his car door open and is just about to get into his car when he looks back and sees us. Throughout the above and into the following, we hear the ambulance siren as it fades into the distance. Steve turns to us. 
My sister just got hit with 50,000 volts of electricity. <laughs> it froze her leg muscles and she collapsed to the floor, banging her head on the side of a steel desk. <laughs> She'll need stitches. She may even have a concussion. Do I care? Somewhat. But there is a part of me that says she had it coming. You're appalled? Everyone's appalled at my attitude towards my sister. Well, guess what? I don't care what you think of me. And I want to put this to you. Is there not at least one member of your family that you would like to taser? Huh? How about old grandpa over there in the corner, playing with himself and drooling on about his 1967 Chevy Chevelle, 396 horsepower, four on the floor. Man, could that sucker go? Well, guess what, old man? Nobody gives a shit! Wham! Then you got the drunk uncle going, Nobody understands me. Nobody understands me. Understand this, loser. Bo-wham! But why stop at family? I got an arm's length long list of people I want to light up. Starting with other people's children. No, I don't want to eat my vegetables. Eat this sunshine! Bo-wham! And you know what? I'm so down for tasers that I'm willing to level the playing field. Give everybody tasers. Make tasers a way of life. Make them mandatory. Start passing them out in grade one. Drop recess and start tasering. Teach them something that will do them some good. Like taser or be tasered. Light me up before I light you up. And I know every one of you out there knows I'm right. We need tasers. You all want a taser and I know it. Let's leave it at this. Flame me before I flame you.